0: We start a new sermon series this morning called Meant for Good, the Joseph story, the gospel according to Joseph, calling it out of Genesis 37 to 50. And let me just set it up by saying that this series and this story in Genesis is relevant to every person in this room. Here's why you have in the past been through suffering and hardship that maybe you struggled to have perspective on. Or you are currently in the midst of suffering and hardship that you need perspective on. Or in the near future, you will walk through suffering and hardship that you need perspective on. And let me add a fourth reason why it's relevant. Everyone in here knows someone who is walking through suffering and hardship. And maybe you had struggled to know how to serve them, how to love them, how to counsel them. So this is a very relevant series for everyone, no matter where you find yourself. And with that, let's open to Genesis chapter 37, where we begin. And I'll read the first 28 verses of Genesis 37. If you don't have a Bible, Uh, in your order order of worship on the sermon guide. The scripture is printed so you can follow along. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, My sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said, tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? The man said, they have gone away for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when, they, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, "'What profit is it if we kill our brother "'and conceal his blood? "'Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites "'and let not our hand be upon him, "'for he is our brother, our own flesh.' "'And his brothers listened to him. "'Then Midianite traders passed by, "'and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit "'and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. "'They took Joseph to Egypt.'" It was 1859 when Charles Darwin published his famous book on the origin of the species. It was the coming out of Darwin's theory of evolution, this alternate view of how we came to be and how, where we came from, that it wasn't God, it wasn't God as creator, he had come up with this theory. Interesting that he came up with the theory slightly before he turned 30. He didn't publish it for 21 years. And the reason why is the interesting story behind it. Darwin's wife, Emma, was a devout Christian. She loved the Lord, loved Christ, and she longed to see Darwin come to faith. And it was the death of their oldest daughter, Annie, when she was 10, that absolutely uh, uh, had a traumatic impact on Darwin. He was so grieved by her death at this young age, that he couldn't even go to her burial. That's how grieved he was. And it was shortly after her death that he put his theory out for publication. You see, before Annie's death, for those 20 years, Darwin struggled with doubt. His doubts about God, he worried about publishing something like this and what it would do to his wife who followed Christ and what it would do to his family. And so he worried, and he, and, and he was struck with worry over it and doubt. But when his daughter died at 10, he moved forward and fully embraced his doubts about God and published this theory of an alternate view and an alternate way to explain who we are and where we came from. You see, it wasn't purely science that drove Darwin to publish this theory on evolution in the mid-1800s. It was suffering. It was hardship. It was the death of his 10-year-old daughter that pushed him to fully reject God, to walk away from any question about the Christian faith and to publish, publish this theory on evolution. You see, suffering and hardship produces a crisis in the human heart. It produces a crisis. In the pain of suffering, in the pain of hardship, there's a battle. There's a battle for the heart. There's a battle for faith. There's a battle for belief. And that's what we're going to explore in this story of Joseph, where there's a battle for belief. There's a battle for faith. There's a battle for God's perspective. And as we begin the story in chapter 37, there's a question that's answered that is very important to answer. And that is, what perspective do you need in the midst of the suffering and the hardship that you face? The first perspective is the election of God and suffering. Now, it's, it's very easy to miss this point in the Joseph story. It's very easy to miss because it's profoundly simple, and that is that God chose Joseph to suffer. You see, he wasn't a victim of bad circumstances, and he wasn't just a victim of evil, and that somehow God was just reacting and responding to things, spinning out of control, and figuring out, how am I going to weave this together for good? No, God chose Joseph to suffer, that Joseph was elect to suffer. And this is a theme that we see throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, that God's chosen deliverers suffer. They suffer at the, at the hands of, of evil, uh, broken people, at the hands of envy and rejection of the world. And you see that, and it culminates all the way up to the cross, right, where we see Jesus as his chosen deliverer suffering, right, that... that that suffering is a, is a pattern that culminates at the cross, but it doesn't end there, that it continues through the lives of God's people. When Paul's writing to the Philippians church, he says this in chapter one of Philippians, verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That phrase has been granted. It's a word that means uh, to show favor or to give generously, meaning it's a, it's a special privilege. My son's in preschool, and not too long ago, uh, he got chosen for the week to be the line leader. Yes, ooh. He got for an entire week to lead the line for his class, wherever they went, to recess, to another room. And during the middle of the week, we'd be home. And I'd say, Isaac, you're the line leader. And he'd go, I am, with a big smile on his face. He was chosen. It was a special privilege Listen, that's the language that Paul is using in Philippians 1. It has been granted to you. It's a special privilege that God has chosen you to suffer. It's why we read in Acts chapter 5, after Peter and the apostles get beaten and told not to speak in the name of Jesus ever again, It says they walked out rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus, that God chooses you to suffer. Now, I recognize that that can be a hard pill to swallow. Some of you hear that, and it turns you to a view of God of Boy, what a cruel God. Almost as if God is getting this kind of cruel pleasure inflicting pain on his people. Now, let me give you two biblical resources that will help you understand this and embrace it. The first is this. God doesn't choose any suffering for you that he hasn't chosen for himself. Jesus chose to suffer for you in his life and death. About a month ago, a little over a month ago, in the height of my sciatic pain, over my back issue, when it was particularly severe, you know, when I was lying on the ground and and, and just physically hard and then emotionally despairing, my wife wrote me this text, and she knows I'm going to share this. Jesus is pouring out his strength on and through me. And he will take care of our kids' hearts. And not to mention that we're both going through this together. She has things she's going through as well. He planned this. And we can't mess it up. I do miss you deeply. And I love you more because of this. Let me hold your arms up to praise him. This is a painful Ebenezer, but a landmark indeed. God is good. And we will feast on the fruit of this years away. Study this well. He cups tears with gentle and very strong hands and leans in to whisper, I am with you, Keith. And he chose this kind of pain for you, even worse. You see, God doesn't choose any suffering for you that he hasn't already chosen for himself in the life and the death of Jesus Christ, the sufferer. That's the first resource. The second resource that helps you embrace this truth that God chooses you to suffer is seen in verse two of of chapter 37. Look at it. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Joseph was 17 when this story started. He was a junior in high school, and he has these two dreams that God gives him saying that he is going to rule over his brothers. He was the youngest of his brothers, and that his brothers were going to serve him. Now, he's 17. They're much older. You can see why they got upset. <laughs> they that the, that the older is going to serve the younger. And yet what we see here happening is a pattern we see throughout the Old Testament. Joseph's father, Jacob, was a twin. And his mother, Rebekah, when she was about to give birth to twins, God said to her, the Lord said to her, there are two nations in your womb. The older will serve the younger. And so when she gave birth, who came out first? Esau, right? Esau was the older. Then Jacob came out. And God chose to work through Jacob the younger. And this is completely countercultural, right? The very natural progression and way for things to happen is for the older, the firstborn, to have the rights and the authority and the inheritance. That's just how it worked. And yet God chose to work through the younger, and He did that throughout the Old Testament. Why? Romans chapter 9, verses 11 to 12, speaking of Jacob and Esau though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, Rebecca, was told the older will serve the younger. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. You see, the reason why God works through the younger and works just completely upside down from the world is because he makes it very clear That salvation doesn't come through human success or human performance. That salvation comes through our sovereign God. And that salvation, the way of salvation is upside down and the way it comes is upside down. That salvation comes through suffering and through hardship. That that is how God brings about salvation. But it explains the reason why when suffering hits your life, when hardship hits your life, your immediate instinctual reaction is to get rid of this, right? It's what our world says. Get rid of the pain. Seek comfort. Your flesh says that. And yet God makes it clear, no, 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 no. Salvation comes through suffering. It comes through hardship. That's how I birth the new. So embrace it. So first perspective that we need on suffering is that God chooses for you to suffer, the election of God in suffering. Second perspective that you need, the purpose of God in suffering. The two dreams that are spoken of here in in Genesis 37, they tell the end of the story, don't they? They say that one day, Joseph is gonna be in power, that he's going to rule, that his brothers are gonna bow down to him. What we don't understand at the beginning is why Joseph is gonna rise to power. Now, by the end of the story, we're gonna see he rises to power so he can save his brothers, right? He can save life. But between the beginning of the story, when he hears the dream, and the end, when it all comes to fruition, there is a long road of rejection and suffering and hardship. Why? Because that is the way that God births salvation culminating in the cross and how he does it through Jesus. Genesis fifty twenty, at the end of our story that we'll get to in about six weeks, it says, as for you, you meant evil against me. This is Joseph talking to his brothers. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God's purpose in suffering is to bring about good, we see it in Romans 8:28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now here's the question. What is the good? And this is where Romans 8:28 and the entire Joseph story can fall off the rails and get misinterpreted. The good is defined in Romans 8:29, being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ being transformed to become more like Christ. That is the good. Ultimately, the good is not healing or a better job or resolved circumstances. But oftentimes that's how Romans eight twenty eight and even the Joseph story get, get spun, that there's gonna be a silver lining. Listen, there may be a silver lining. There may be healing. That may come. The silver lining, if we wanna call it that, is the heart and character of you and those around you and all that God is is pursuing and saving, being transformed to Jesus Christ. That is the good. That's the purpose of God in suffering. And so you look at this, you look at the Joseph story, right? All the suffering that he goes through is to save his brothers, to save a family, ultimately to save a family that God promised through Abraham. Abraham, I'm gonna gonna birth a family through you. And by the end of the Joseph story, it's a small, tiny family moving to Egypt. By the end of their time in Egypt, they're, they're large. And now today, it's a family that spans the globe, all that are followers of Christ. And so I want you to see that this family that's growing and moving towards the end of time when Jesus returns and his family is complete, all of that progression happens through suffering, that salvation is being worked out through hardship and through suffering. In her book, A Place of Healing, Joni Erickson Tata, who if you're not familiar with her, she um, became paralyzed through a tragic accident at a young age. Listen to what she writes. She says, we tend to worry about the cares, troubles, and afflictions of life. We tend to worry that they will wear us down, dulling our joy, diluting our hope, and robbing us of the radiance we once experienced as believers. In fact, she writes, it might be the very opposite. It isn't the hurts, blows, and bruises that rob us of the freshness of Christ's beauty in our lives. More likely, it is careless ease, empty pride, earthly preoccupations, and too much prosperity that will put layers of dirty films over our souls. And then she goes on to illustrate her point. She was in Paris and she was uh, touring and visiting the Notre, Notre Dame Cathedral. And she says she remembers seeing it and it was so large and, and it was, you know, a, a thousand years old. But as she toured it, it was, it was dirty. That there was just black soot and grime all over this cathedral to the point that it had no no luster to it anymore. She could barely even um, pick out the detailed carvings that were so beautiful because it was so full of soot and grime. And then she remembers hearing that it went under a a one-year restoration where they put scaffolding up around it and they sandblasted it. And she remembers after the restoration was done seeing a picture of it and she was undone because it was so different than what she had seen. That it had, the stones were were shining now and bright. That she could see the the detail in the carvings. That the sandblasting had had restored this cathedral to its beauty. And she makes the point that God uses suffering to sandblast our lives. To sandblast the, the soot and the grime and the, the complacence and everything that builds up over our souls. She goes on in her book to say this. There's nothing like real hardships to strip off the veneer in which you and I so carefully cloak ourselves. Heartache and physical pain reach below the superficial surface places of our lives, stripping away years of accumulated indifference and neglect. When pain and problems press up against a holy God, suffering can help but strip away years of dirt. dirt. Affliction has a way of jackhammering our character, shaking us up and loosening our grip on everything we hold tightly. But the beauty of being stripped down to the basics, sandblasted until we reach a place where we feel empty and helpless, is that God can fill us up with himself. When pride and pettiness have been removed, God can fill us with Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, here is what is so remarkable about God using our suffering to accomplish his purpose of salvation. What's so remarkable about it is he does it as he's sandblasting us. You know, you, you think about a restoration, right? A lot of times, and I don't know if it was the case with what um, she talks about, but sometimes in a restoration of a building, they, they just shut it down for a couple months, right? They, 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 they shut it down, we're going to get it restored, and then you can come back in. That's not the, how, how God works with us in the gospel. He accomplishes his purposes through our mess, through our weakness, through our sin. And as he's sandblasting that, he's accomplishing his purposes. This is what we see in the Joseph story. I mean, look at what we have in the beginning of chapter 37. We have a fully mature 17-year-old Joseph who's not arrogant, who's not proud, uh, who's not spoiled. No, this is an arrogant, immature, spoiled, bratty 17-year-old that God's working through. And, and, he's a, and, he's a, and he's a kid that's favored and spoiled and, and receives special treatment from his dad. Well, guess what? There's something called generational sin. Jacob, his dad, received special treatment from his mama, Rebecca. If you go back and read the story. And so all we see here is Jacob just repeating this now, putting his favor on Joseph. And what's phenomenal in this story is that God says, well, then I'm gonna put my favor on Joseph. I'm going to put my favor on him. And how does Joseph receive that favor? Woo. Puff that chest out. Look at me. Right? In his arrogance, in his sin, in his weakness, he receives God's election, choosing to promote himself over his brothers. You see, Joseph received his election to privilege rather than to suffering and serving. Now, by the end of the story, he's going to be elected to suffer and to serve. But when he first gets it, it's an election to privilege. And God is going to take this arrogant 17-year-old and use him to accomplish his purpose. It's an amazing picture of how God works through human weakness. I love uh, in in Acts chapter 2, when Peter's preaching his sermon. Listen to what he says about how this dynamic plays of God, uh, of God working through human weakness. Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You hear what Peter said there? People of Israel, you killed Jesus. But God sent him to the cross. It was the Lord's will to crush him. You see, God accomplishes purposes through sinful, weak people. Imagine if a a surgeon performs an excellent surgery, a really difficult surgery, but a very excellent surgery using a a sharp scalpel scalpel and up-to-date equipment, right? If a surgeon performed performed that surgery, we would say, you'd praise the surgeon. Wow, what a great surgeon. Imagine if that same surgeon Performs the same exact difficult surgery and the same excellent surgery using a dull scalpel and inferior equipment. How much more would you praise that surgeon? God performs his surgery on this world using dull scalpels like you and me. No offense. But yes, offense, intended. We were in staff meeting this past week talking about this, and you know, we, we talked about this dynamic that we see in the Joseph story. And uh, somebody said, Let's get t shirts printed that say dull scalpels, right? Or, or not the sharpest tool in the shed, or butter knives, you know, whatever it is. Isn't it amazing that God uses weak, sinful, broken, people like you and me to accomplish his purposes. And as he's sandblasting us, he's accomplishing his purposes, not only in us, but in the world. That that's what God does through suffering. Third perspective that you need in the midst of your suffering, the election of God and suffering that he chooses you to suffer, right? You got the purpose of God and suffering to transform you into the image of Christ and he does it through your weakness. And then third perspective, the providence of God and suffering. This, the whole story. But this first chapter in 37 is filled with the it just so happened scenario, right? It just so happened when Joseph went down to Shechem to find his brothers that he happened to run into a man who knew where his brothers had gone to Dothan. It just so happened as his brothers are sitting there eating dinner Having thrown Joseph into a pit, that a caravan of Ishmaelites come by that are, oh, guess what? Headed down to Egypt. It just so happened. And what's fascinating about the beginning of this story is you've got Joseph's dreams that say he's going to rise to power. And what happens right after those dreams? He heads the opposite way, he goes into a pit. Here's the promise. Joseph, you're going to rise to power. But now I'm going to move you further away from that. You're going to go into a pit. You're going to get sold into slavery. As we're going to see next week, you're going to be falsely accused and you're going to get thrown into prison. And you say, wait a minute, God, what's going on here? Joseph is moving further away from the dream that you gave him. And yet all along, God is orchestrating the events of this story to bring them together perfectly to eventually accomplish his purpose and for things to unfold as he wants them to unfold. If you've ever seen the backside of a tapestry, you've seen a picture of this. The, the front of a tapestry is, is this beautiful picture or design Right, of threads that, you know, different color threads that are woven together that make this just beautiful picture. If you take a tapestry and you flip it around, you see something very different on the back side, don't you? You see threads that have been cut and tied off that are fraying. Uh, It's disorganized. It looks chaotic. You can barely even make out the design on the back side of the tapestry, It, it just seems hidden. And yet that's what you and I look at. That's what Joseph was looking at when he was in the pit, when he got sold into slavery, when he was falsely accused, as we'll see, when he got thrown in prison. He's looking at the backside of this tapestry, just like you and I do. Family dysfunction, rivalry, fresh off of Christmas and the new year, sin, addictions, sickness, disease, All the things that come that fall under the category of hardship and affliction. We're looking at the backside of the tapestry. And it's chaotic. And the design seems hidden. And yet in this life, we will only see the backside of the tapestry. It's not until Jesus returns that we will see the beauty of the front side of the tapestry and all its beauty and glory but we will see it. How do we know this? When Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, the tapestry was completed in heaven. The tapestry is complete in heaven. And it's just a matter of time before Jesus returns and he lowers it down to this earth where you and I can see it in full view. Dan McConchie, he was the vice president of government affairs at, at Americans United for Life. He was riding his motorcycle in a suburban intersection. And a car kind of moved into his lane and, and, and pushed him over into the, the next lane. And he got in an accident. The next thing he remembers is two weeks later, waking up in a trauma, a level one trauma center. Listen to, this, to the description of what he woke up to. Six broken ribs, deflated lung, broken clavicle, broken shoulder blade, five broken vertebrae, and worst of all, amidst all of these breaks, he had a spinal cord injury that paralyzed him. And the trauma surgeon and the doctor came to him and said uh, to he and his wife, it'll be a, a miracle if you ever walk again. Now, what do you expect the next thing to come out of this story you know god healed him did a miracle he's walking again no 8 years later he's still in the wheelchair he's looking at the back side of the tapestry oh he'll one day he'll walk again he'll have a new body right that tapestry will be flipped over lowered to earth and it'll be wonderful but he's looking at the back side of the tapestry and this is what he said in the article that I think just sums up what we're talking about here on a perspective of suffering and hardship. What I learned is that this life isn't for our comfort. Instead, the purpose of this life is that we become conformed to the image of Christ. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen when everything is unicorns and rainbows. It instead happens when life is tough, when we are forced to rely upon God through prayer just to make it through the day, that is when he is most at work in our lives, molding us into who he designed us to be. He goes on to say this in the article, my prayers are different today than they were eight years ago. Back then I looked at God like Santa Claus. I asked him to send nice things my way. Now I have one prayer that I pray more than any other. Lord, may I be able to say at the end of today that I was faithful. Let's pray. Father, the pain of suffering and hardship produces a crisis in our heart. If we're honest, it produces a crisis of belief. And yet we hear loud and clear through your word this morning through the beginning of this Joseph story the perspective you call us to in our suffering and hardship. That you don't choose any suffering for us that you haven't chosen for yourself in the life and death of Jesus. And that you have great purpose in it to transform us into the image of Jesus. And that as you're doing that, you're using us to accomplish your purposes in this world, to work out salvation. And that, Father, we can trust that every event, every circumstance, how things are unraveling are being worked out according to your plan. Father, as we come to the table, would this meal be a reminder that Jesus, you suffered for us? And because of that, you understand, you sympathize with our weaknesses, with our pain and with our suffering and with our hardship. That you're with us in a way that nobody else can be. That you can draw near because you have experienced every form of suffering to an infinite degree when you went to the cross. Father, would you use this Lord's Supper to renew us, to strengthen us. And for those that are feeble this morning, for those that are weak, that those that are maybe just hanging on, that you would strengthen them in power. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.